0: and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show.
1: And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for joining us here live and on demand on the blaze. I am Steve Dace, Todd aaron mcintyre here with me as well if you'd like to come aboard 888-933-93 steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program you can also like us on facebook who doesn't like us so you need to like us there a lot and then it probably still won't matter i'm just gonna be honest with you about that you can follow it what are we at 247 likes we've added in the last five months uh if you hold your tongue just right Indeed, truly amazeballs. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter, at least for now, at Steve Dace Show, and the last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. We've got a bit of an eclectic show lined up for you today. Uh, We've got Pop Culture Tuesday, where we look at the intersection between pop culture and conservatism. And with the year 2019 half over, I will be unveiling what I would rank Uh, The top 10 movies I've seen so far this year, and we'll delve uh, into what they have to say about some of the themes and values we talk about on this show uh, as well. Uh, Then for fake news or not, I think this is the first time we've ever had a guest for fake news or not. But our editor, Leon Wolf here at The Blaze, is going to be joining us uh, to kind of give us um, some perspectives on the Tommy Robinson story out of the U.K., Many of us know him as uh, the guy who was essentially arrested for journalisming, uh, or at least doing legitimate journalism, reporting on uh, what was going on there, particularly crimes with uh, the Muslim community. But is there more to that story we haven't heard? Uh, Leon Wolf will be joining us to talk about that coming up uh, a little bit later on, because it is the year of no BS. That's kind of how we roll around here. And then we're going to find out what is the secret sauce to Chick-fil-A? How did this company go from near bankruptcy now to a force of nature in the culture? One of their former mucky mucks, Steve Robinson, has a new book out about exactly that. And he'll be joining us a little bit later on as well. But before we get to all of that, of course, we must first begin with Aaron reminding us about what happened while we were away.
2: What happened while we were away brought to you by are you having fun yet? Donald Trump doubled down on his rhetoric from over the weekend, saying if you don't like the U.S., you can leave. Complaining all the time. Very simply, you can leave. You can leave right now. Come back if you want. Don't come back. It's okay too. But if you're not happy, you can leave. He also singled out Minnesota Congresswoman Ilan Omar. I hear the way she talks about Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda has killed many Americans. She said you can hold your chest out. You can when I think of America, huh? When I think of Al Qaeda, I can hold my chest out. When she talked about the World Trade Center being knocked down, some people, you remember the famous some people. Uh, these are people that, in my opinion, hate our country. In response, the squad, which is apparently a term we're using in politics now, of Elon Omar, Rashida Talib. Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez held a press conference where Omar was asked if she's pro Al Qaeda.
3: I will not dignify it with an answer. Al Qaeda, you know, has been an expert.
2: <laughs> in other news, the manifesto of the man who attempted to firebomb an immigration and customs enforcement facility in Tacoma, Washington over the weekend was released. In the manifesto, the man apologizes to his quote unquote comrades for quote, missing the rest of the revolution. Tells his comrades to take up arms and rails against the so-called concentration camps he says the United States is running for illegal aliens. Three of the four congresswomen involved in the aforementioned press conference were asked by the rebel media if they would condemn the Antifa bomber. And surprise, none of them did. And now learning Spanish today. Today's phrase is Welcome to America, come for the jobs, stay because Antifa firebombed your car.
0: Bienvenido a America, Ven a por los trabajos, quédate porque Antifa incendió tu auto.
2: Also, on this day in 2014, Barack Obama said this
0: There may be some narrow circumstances uh, in which uh, there is a humanitarian or refugee status that a family might be eligible for. If that were the case, it would be better for them to be able to apply in-country rather than take a very dangerous journey all the way up uh, to Texas uh, to make those same claims. Uh, But I I think it's important to recognize that uh, that would not necessarily accommodate a large number.
2: Moving on, let's check in on Joe Biden on the campaign trail.
0: So i leave people the option, if you like your health care plan. your employer-based plan, you can keep it.
2: He also told MSNBC... He starts making fun of your age, your mental state. He starts going after you in
3: ways that this is... I mean...
0: I said, come on, Donald. Come on, man. You, how many push-ups you want to do here, pal?
3: We can't bust heads like we used to, but we have our ways. Oh, yeah. oh, you One trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere.
0: It's like I was in a, in a parade in Independence, Missouri, and I always and I run in parades. It's the way I go back and forth. And as I, a, a, a fellow from my Independence who was a Trump supporter said, hey, Sleepy Joe, I said, come run with me, Jack. Come on, man. A woman was caught
2: on video assaulting a pro-life activist and vandalizing anti-abortion displays on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then later sat in an interview with police with a baby on her lap and bragged that others, quote, said that I'm a hero, end quote, for her premeditated actions. The famous gamer Ninja, very popular for his commentaries on the video game Fortnite, recently shared his pro-life testimony.
1: Those of you guys who don't know, I was not supposed to be born, Essentially, A lot of the doctors told my mom that I had spina bifida or Down syndrome or a number of diseases and that I should be aborted. But anyways, she said no to all the doctors. until so she found one that was like, you know, can I have this baby? And fast forward, you know, you know, nine months after that, I was born. Nothing wrong with me. My mom is a saint and an angel and I love her to death.
2: Imagine if she listened. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker has been tapped to lead the conservative group Young Americans for Freedom. And finally, Adventures in Chick-fil-A, this time in Nashville, Tennessee.
3: times in our lives, we all have pain, we all
0: have sorrow, but if we are wise, we all let it. Always
4: tomorrow, lean on me, when you're not strong,
2: I'll be your friend. And that's what happened while we were away.
1: Well, there were some uh, truth bombs in that montage, and there will be some truth bombs on today's show. And we like to share uh, new ones whenever we have the opportunity. Our friends at Swiss America have a new one for you. Uh, It's called The Secret War, about uh, what the next phase now in transferring us over to a cashless society with a fiat currency backed by uh, essentially nothing other than uh, a weapons arsenal. Uh, What the ultimate next phase of this is, which is uh, the, the taxing, yes, of every transaction. But also the tracing and then the potential blocking of every transaction as well, that perhaps the following phase following this one uh, is a social credit score right out of a Black Mirror episode, which Google is now uh, working uh, to implement into Chinese society. If you'd like to learn more about this, get the report The Secret War for free via Swiss America. Give them a call at 1-800-289-2646. That's 1-800-289-2646. Or find them online at SwissAmerica.com. For those of you that are subscribers to Blaze TV, uh, the overtime uh, today, we're going to discuss uh, an issue that did not reach Aaron's montage, which is the, the the implosion of Beto O'Rourke. And is this is this the fastest, most stunning supernova we have ever seen and electoral politics when there wasn't a scandal, right? Um, Kitty porned, um, uh, rape dungeons, Matt Lauer. I mean, is something that morally brought you down. A year ago at this time, this guy was the ultimate new hotness. He was the face of the Democrats' 2018 blue wave. And now I mean you have, I mean he has, he's, he's supernova in, in spectacularly embarrassing fashion. Right before our eyes. And, you know, Texas is no small state, by the way. That's a pretty large stage. And he flourished on that large stage for months. He got on a national stage and imploded. We're going to discuss what that means and why for those of you that subscribe to us here on blaze TV in the overtime later today, if you'd like to be a blaze TV subscriber, really simple blaze tv.com slash and you'll get a reduced discounted subscription using my name that will give you access not only to today's overtime, but every uh, piece of exclusive content we have yet to do or have ever done here with the entire uh, menagerie of talent we have collected here at blaze TV, blaze tv.com slash Now to the rest of Aaron's montage. And I don't know if I should say this or not, but why not? No BS. Yeah, no BS. The initial thought I had when I watched the first third of Aaron's montage is that Unless there's a recession, there's no way he's going to lose. It, it just, unless there's a recession, there's just, there's no way. You know, we, we sat here 24 hours ago on this show when people were aghast at Trump stepping into the Democrats having a, a they were attempting to have some kind of internal discipline. They were just doing it very publicly, trying to um, pipe down the squad uh, that as they were dubbed yesterday. Let me just translate what that means. Okay. Uh, What it means is um, these new young leftists who are being honest with the American people about where we were going to take this whole thing all these years. We just can't have them being this honest with you all about it yet because you're not, you're not, you might buy the undercoating, but you're not ready to buy the whole jalopy uh, of this thing called cultural Marxism yet. You're not ready to buy it yet. You can't, we can't just throw it right in your face. We can show you a little leg, tease it with, you know, some victimology and, you know, you might get a freebie here, but you're not really willing to buy that. You're not going to walk into the showroom yet and buy that car. You're not there yet. You're not desensitized enough yet. You're not desperate enough yet. System hasn't collapsed enough yet. And so you have these young ideologues. And then I think Elon Omar is running a whole different game, by the way. You know, I've get, I, we have talked on this show. Many of you have asked me the question over the years, how do these leftists believe they are going to really align with Muslims? Do they, do they not pay attention to what is going on in cultures dominated by Islam? Why, why do they believe they are going to, uh, the, that, that is, the, Islam is going to sign up for the new morality and all of their other secular leftist ways? They're not. See, the leftists think they're the ones using the Muslims. It's the other way around, actually. I mean, Islamism has been playing the game of cultural insurgency since the 7th century, folks. All right, long before there was an Antonio Gramsci or a Cloward-Piven plan. All right, long before the progressives took over Harvard Law School and created uh, uh, case law. They, they have been destabilizing civilizations with fake alliances long before this. I don't, I don't, you know, if, if, if Ilan Omar walked down the street of Jordan or Egypt, we'll just pick somewhat moderate Muslim countries where they have, where you can freely be a Christian on some level or a Jew. If she walked down the street of Amman, Jordan or Cairo, Egypt in their urban centers where they're the most modern, apparently in the middle of any afternoon and said that uh, she was for gay marriage and wanted to, she wanted to uh, stand for uh, pride month, like she did in a video last month. They'd, they'd honor kill her right there in the street, and people would applaud, including a lot of women. No way, no way. I, I, don't, I think she's playing a whole different game than Ocasio-Cortez. I think she's using them as useful idiots. But that's probably a topic for another show down the line. Um, that's some truth, y'all may not be ready to hear that one yet on our end. So maybe we'll table that for now. But what 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 you what, what you're seeing is that. The whole conversation yesterday was about him stepping in it. And why would you do that? And I agree with that. Why would you get in the middle of that? But remember, 24 hours ago on this show, what did we predict? By the end of the day, right? Didn't we say this? By the end of the day, they will come forward. And they did. In spectacular fashion. Their fawning media gave them the platform to do it. And what that ended up being yesterday was a 45-minute Trump 2020 campaign commercial. And he has all the high ground now. All of it now. I mean, when, 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 when you saw Rashida Talib's response was not, I love this country, I'm offended, but I'm a proud Palestinian-America, when... I mean, this is, you know... And now now he has found the nerve. And, you know, we've been talking on this show since, what, February, that if we were running a a Trump super PAC, we'd be dropping a half million or a million in Iowa. Why? Because in Iowa, because media is cheap here, but the whole presidential process is here. So it's essentially a national ad campaign without putting 20 million into it. You'd get a lot of bang for your buck and just make these people the face of the Democratic Party and put the folks that are running for president in a very difficult position. To either disassociate with those people, which then causes a fissure in their own base, and they're fighting a civil war now, or they have to align with them, which then estranges them from many of the voters they could otherwise persuade. Now I believe you're going to see that they're going to go down that road now. And Trump sees this, and he's right, as an even a far more powerful NFL kneelers, because these are elected officials. These are people in the halls of government that are openly hostile to the oath of office they took, not passively breaking it in order to slowly but surely usher in a progressive utopia. These are, these are Che Guevarians. And, and, and at this point, if there's not a recession, there's no way. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see how he can lose because I I don't think the majority of the American people like him. I don't think the majority of the American people like people like me. But I know, that's what I think, but I know the majority of the American people don't believe that the only reason we would stop bringing in people from the Congo, which today there's a report in the Washington Examiner, the Ebola outbreak there has gone to a whole different level and remember about a month ago, it was the middle of June, so almost exactly a month ago, would we find a couple of dozen illegals from the Democratic Republic of Congo were seized at the, at the southern border, trying to get in through our civ-like southern border. I mean, so the only reason we wouldn't allow people from a, a nation overrun by Ebola, one of the most deadly viruses ever to appear on the face of this earth. The only reason we wouldn't let them come in with an automatic asylum claim is we're racist. I, I think the majority of the American people don't like Trump. I think the majority of the American people don't like people like us. I know the majority of the American people hate being called racist because they don't want to risk importing Ebola into their country, particularly because it will be in your neighborhoods, folks. It's not going to be amongst the brownstones and the and the ivory towers where your media and political elites reside. It will be it, it won't it, or when they're not hanging out at Martha's Vineyard and laughing at you, of course. Um, it, it will not be where they live. It will be where you reside that this takes place. The Walmart where you shop, where you shop, the Target where you shop, the gas station that you stop at. That's where this will happen. And you sit there and go back to 2014 and you hear Barack Obama say that poverty and crime in your country is not a rationale to apply for asylum in the United States.
3: Racist. Clearly. And I guess
1: that makes him a racist, right? Obviously. Obviously. So... Whatever transpired yesterday, and you know, I know some of you believe that he set a trap. I had a good friend of mine call me yesterday, and we didn't argue because we're good friends, but we had a disagreement and discussed this on the phone yesterday. And he works, uh, does some work for the administration, so he has a more favorable view than probably me. But um, I've I finally said to him, brother, it doesn't matter if you're right that he set him a trap, or I'm right that he's just a narcissist who couldn't stand avoiding uh, being not talked, or uh, you know, just not being talked about. The end result is always the same. Whether he is, whether this is some degree of chess or not, whether this is just random ids in motion or not, it, it, it's really an irrelevant argument. Because the game always ends. We always end up in the same center of the maze. They always come out and say, we're communists and we hate you. Regardless of what his motivations are, it, not, the, the only constant here, and who knows? His motivations might be seven layered. Who knows? But the one, the one constant through all the years, Ray, has been they will come out and say we're the communists. Yes, it's us. And the and the when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one they hit. And that's what that disastrous press conference was yesterday. Absolutely disastrous. But as Aaron likes to say, can't stop, won't stop. They cannot help themselves. They are true revolutionaries, and now that he knows, every time he rattles the proverbial zipper, they will come calling. I mean, I, I don't. And especially if the Talk best about they, can't stop, won't stop. Yes, especially if the the alternative is Joe Biden, who, in the midst of of, of, of pointing out that he's still as sharp as ever, is fumbling for thoughts. And then says push-ups are a test of his mental capabilities. At, at, at this point, unless there's a recession, I, I, I don't see how he loses to these people. What are you guys' thoughts?
2: Basically the same. Um, and I, I don't know. It's anecdotal a little bit, but getting out and about and talking to some people, it's just like um, – pining, pining for, uh, pining for this type of behavior to stop from, from leftists. And I always tell them, of course, can't stop, won't stop what you just said. But, um, there is no doubt, I think in a lot of people's minds that if this is the face, if the, if the squad, if the squad is the face of the democratic party there, that can only mean good things, Mm -hmm. um, for, uh, president trump's reelect possibilities not necessarily for the country it's it's a terrible thing Uh, let's let's make this let's draw that let's let's put this marker down right now the fact that we have four congresswomen who might be the face of the democratic party none of which or at least three of which who were involved in that press conference yesterday would not just say on camera i condemn antifa firebombing and ice facility they are the face of one of the two largest political parties in the United States. That is not a good thing on any level. It might be a good thing for Donald Trump's reelection uh, uh, chances. It's not a good thing on any level. And I think people in mass recognize that mm-hmm. whether or not they fall in line with uh, Steve Dace or anybody on the show or whether they're more in line with whatever. I mean, anecdotally, I'm, I'm hearing from people that their parents who have been lifelong liberal Democrats, you know, whatever, um, they are They are legitimately uh, concerned about this new wave in the Democratic Party. Again, it's just anecdotally from what I've heard from people. but this is not a way, a path that a lot of people want to go down. Again, most people we've said this multiple times. most people just want the American dream. They just want to, they just want to live in peace essentially. And these people, the leftists in the Democratic Party are saying no we're not going to let you live in peace, you're going to bend the knee to bail. That's essentially what we're hearing over and and over.
1: And Aaron and Todd, you and I were at, you and I were in, in college during the era at the dawn of political correctness, when they started unleashing these people on the, their political opponents. And cynically, everybody was a racist, instantly a racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobe. Right. And so they're, they're a full, almost a full generational cycle now into unleashing this element in their own base. I, I don't know how they could put the genie back in the bottle now, even if they tried. I I don't know what they would do now.
3: Oh, you know, I, I believe that, which is why I want to reset something you said, because I think it bears repeating. Yesterday, we, we didn't argue the specifics of what Trump said. It was the tactics, the moment mm-hmm. that he interjected himself. That being said, see, that that can't be put in the bottle either. So I want to go back to what you said of using Iowa as a national... Platform for Trump's reelect. If you mm-hmm. if you do that, there's going to be times that he do, he's involved where you're going to like. Ugh. But it I, I think it bears repeating again what you said right now in this moment. Is this the time if you're Donald Trump that you secure as much of a re-election win as you could? If you wait post Iowa without setting the terms for the Democrats, because look, he got involved. It was clumsy. Mm-hmm. But look what happened 24 hours later.
1: Well, I think we, I think we have learned in the last 24 hours, and I, I've used this analogy before. Um, you know, in the Cruz campaign, every time we could get Marco Rubio talking about immigration, we knew we were going to win. And there were plenty of times I thought he gave better answers than our guy did, or they were more eloquent, or his answers sounded good, they should have been good enough. But the fact that that issue was such an obvious weakness to him, Because of the face of the he was kind of the 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 dimple faced uh, mascot for the gang of eight that our base hated, we were fine losing arguments to him on a in a given day, in a given cycle, at a given moment on the immigration issue, because every moment that debate was being was 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 being held, we were winning. The the larger debate And And that's the same thing I think we've learned in the last twenty four hours is happening here. That that no matter how clumsily, how offensive, how toxic in the future. Trump is almost assuredly going to be in communicating some of these points, in provoking them, no matter how he does it, their response means he's going to win this argument almost no matter how he provokes Which them is, at this point, because so, they cannot restrain themselves because they're true believers in this. Stuff.
3: So you run those commercials here, you set the terms. All of the press they won't just like in 2016 they they will they won't be able to stop. The entire argument will be exactly what Trump wants it to be. I again, this is not a pro-Trump argument. This just seems to be. This is just one plus is, I'm just, one. I'm giving you a
1: weather forecast. Yes. I'm not telling you I like summer, fall, autumn, spring. I'm just telling you the conditions we have here. As long. As, now, what could change those conditions? If the economy were to go into a recession, that could that can change conditions. But barring that, I, I don't I don't see how he can how he loses to them because he is has, he has, they both want he's he's willing to do something most Republicans have not been willing to do in the last couple of decades. He's willing to fight dirty with them or even go face-to-face with them at any level on these cultural flashpoints. I mean, if, 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 if this were Mitt Romney or John McCain, first of all, they wouldn't be in the White House. But if this was a more conventional Republican, they'd be trying to pivot off of this to the jobs report as soon as they possibly could. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Or, or some, you know, other, you know, uh, you know, you know economic you know, data point that doesn't resonate with the vast majority of average everyday Americans. But, but he's nothing if not the consummate salesman and showman. I mean, when you've got a storyline on a show, you don't, you don't fire the castmate on, uh, on the apprentice that people are tuning in for. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Until you absolutely have to. And you don't stop selling a product that people are, are, are still buying no matter how much the, com- your competitors hate you for it at that time. Yeah. this, product sells. This storyline works. And you know why? Regardless of whatever you think Trump is, if you view him aspirationally, if you view him as a poor influence, you know, a lot of us are kind of projecting, in many cases, our view of him without really knowing him. The constant here is they know, we know who they are. They are telling us now. It's no longer conjecture. People keep asking me, well, Steve, you've been telling us this is who the Democrats are all these years. Well, I've been telling you this, yes. They are now. It's more, far more powerful coming out of their mouths. They're the ones saying, yes, that's who we are. And we hate you. And we hate your way of life. And if you give us the opportunity, we will end every last morsel of it, if given any modicum of power whatsoever. You know? And that's a whole different stage of hey i'm tactically or, or strategically or analytically giving you my view of who the opponent is it's totally different when the opponent now starts letting you know and telling you in verbally you know when 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 they when they when they jump out in a red unitard and a pitchfork i think that that takes things to a whole new game as far as i am concerned
3: and that's and that's now where we are at as frustrating as all this is now, I'm sure you find solace in the fact that if you uh, like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. The safe. Biden. Biden I, I'm glad you brought that up. There were st- those clips from Biden were so bad. I
1: forgot to reset the worst part of it. To to see him sit there and verbalize, if you like, lo- uh, if you like your current doctor, you can keep it. Or you like your current healthcare plan, you can keep it. I just, I, I'm just, just a bit outside. Yes, you know he's just stand up, uh, Chuck. You know, you know what? This is this is like the third time Brett Favre came back right and he should have just left it at the two times he came back if you know what I'm saying I mean it's just uh, he's, he's lost the fastball there's, there's nothing there people aren't vote, going to vote that for president unless there's a recession you know then we have learned in history that you'll lower your standards for an alternative when you're angry at the incumbent at that point but barring a recession just straight up people aren't going to vote for that for president and I don't think he's going to be the nominee anyway More in a moment. So, before I started uh, working here, when I would just come on and appear uh, on uh, previous Blaze programs as a guest, and I'd hear various hosts, uh, you know, sing the praises of this product, Relief Factor. You know, you hear that stuff and you're like, I, it, can it really be that good? I mean, really that good? And then I, I was given the opportunity uh, several months ago to give it a shot. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a convert. I mean, I, I, this, this product has made a huge difference in how effective I am, uh, during workouts, how quickly I recover afterwards, uh, the amount of soreness or lack thereof I have when I get up in the mornings. So, so here's the thing you need to know about relief factor that, to me, there's two big talking points that matter more than any other number one, that it's hundred percent drug free, but then number two, uh, that it's a formula that was created and devised by, by physicians, you know, people who can prescribe drugs. So I'm always looking to, you know, I'm not against antibiotics. I'm not against medication. I grew up with a single mom who was an ER nurse, you know, but I don't think we can medicate everything. You know, your creator gave you some healing powers. We should try to unleash those whenever we can, because here's what happens. You get, your body starts building immunity, Uh, To a lot of these medications and so the doses have to get stronger and stronger the medications have to become uh, the volume uh, greater and greater, right? What I love about relief factor is the four key natural ingredients that are specifically put together to unleash your god-given healing power in your body because the body was created. Uh, To to fight back against what's called inflammation. That's what's causing chronic pain. Now, relief factor is not going to heal an injury. If you got an injury, go to a doctor, get treatment, get rehab. You might need medicine. Okay, but if you've got inflammation, this is where this is where relief factor comes in. And now you can try it for a dollar a day. Get the three week starter kit for just twenty bucks. A dollar a day. When you go to the website, relieffactor.com, what do you have to lose for a dollar a day? Except maybe, finally, hopefully the pain. Relieffactor.com is the website. Get the starter kit there on the website at relieffactor.com. Leon Wolf is our editor here at The Blaze. Leon, it's good to have you with us here for this week's Fake News or Not. Brother, how are you?
4: Doing great. How are you, Steve?
1: I could be a little bit better, but I could be a lot worse. You know what I'm saying? All right. Isn't that always the truth? That's that's pretty much my perpetual Facebook status update. Yes, could be a little bit uh, better, but a lot worse. So Tommy Robinson is a name that a lot of people in our audience have heard over the last few months. They've they've seen uh, video clips that have gone viral of UK police whisking him away while he is trying to film and report on trials involving uh, alleged crimes by. Uh, by Muslims in the UK and they have they've got a huge controversy over Islamic uh, immigration throughout the United Kingdom and and that's a whole cultural debate that they're having over there uh, he's been outspoken on that debate people have seen those clips there's a lot of headlines from over the weekend that he's going to jail for the act of journalism that uh, essentially they're putting him away because he was trying to tell the outside world uh, about uh, how the UK is favoring um, Islamic uh, immigrants over their own people even into the detriment of their own people so you wrote a long story and and i was looking at i thought as i read through it you know we'd be better off just getting you on uh, than trying to discuss this with the with the audience and it has since actually been given a a correction as well we'll talk about that in a second but give us the gist of the the, is there more you know the, the proverb says one man's story seems true until you hear the other side and I don't like to be uh, conned. I don't like to be BS'd. Um, And so, it, it, is 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 our audience, in your view, and given the research you've done, Leon, are they being given the full the the full perspective of who Tommy Robinson really is?
4: No, I don't think so. And I, and I think the most important thing for people to understand, and I, I go into a lot of kind of Tommy's background in the story, and I'm sure we'll get to talk to that. But I think the people need to understand. let's leave all that out everything that i say about tommy let's leave it all that let's focus just on what he did because i think no matter what kind of monster he is if he really and truly was doing what he says he was which is exposing the cover-up of of repeat you know criminal pedophilia rape then he deserves credit for that And, and the issue is at least for me that that's that's not why he was put into prison that's just not an accurate description of what happened here This Huddersfield grooming gang, which is the the trial that he was filming that he got in trouble for, was a group of individuals that the government, you know, admittedly, it took them longer to catch than it should have. I can't say for sure that that's because they were Muslim. I mean, after all, we have Epstein, Harvey Weinstein here in this country who, who, you know, got away with it for far too long as well. Sometimes, you know, people just get away with stuff for, for far too long. Anyway, the government got off their duff. They arrested these people, they prosecuted them, there were dozens of people who ended up facing trial, I believe over four dozen at the end of the day. One of the things that's true about the criminal justice system is they don't like to try 50 people at once, because if they put one innocent person in with 49 guilty people, then the innocent person could say on appeal, look, you just put me in this massive, ridiculous farce of a trial with 49 guilty people, the jury couldn't really determine whether my guy was innocent or not. And so, that's some, so they broke this up into three different trials. And the, the court has an interest in making sure, uh, both in the American justice system and the British justice system, that criminal defendants are tried only on the evidence that is presented at trial, not on what they hear in the media, not on what they see on somebody's Facebook Live, uh, not, not anything like that. And if, if it gets to the point that the jury sees some of this stuff – Um, then the whole – the charges can be thrown out. They have to declare a mistrial. they got to start all over, cost the government, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to try again. And in the worst-case scenario, somebody could go free. So Robinson was dinged for violating a court order um, during the the jury deliberations on the second of the third trial. And the judge had, had set forth an order that was scheduled to be automatically lifted the day after the third and final trial was over. I said, no reporting about this. Once the trial's done, literally the day after you guys write anything about the trial that you want to write. Uh, but until we get all these defendants tried and convicted, and ultimately, by the way, many, many of them were convicted for long prison sentences. Uh, so that was done, I think, properly. Um, you know, you, got, you guys can write whatever you want. Uh, he decided to go ahead and, and do it during the middle of the proceedings. And, you know, look, i get the first amendment concerns i get the people that that strikes them as wrong but it's a very common thing here in the united states too i mean how many times have you seen a news report about a high profile trial um and instead of getting pictures or video from inside the courtroom you get these drawings you know what i'm talking about i'm Mm -hmm. sure 100 (laughs) of the audience has seen that somebody goes in and has to draw it because the court very frequently says no cameras are going to be allowed no filming is going to be allowed at this trial we're going to try not to prejudice the jury. And sometimes it happens, you know, like everybody thinks, well, OJ trial was televised, but they put the jury on lockdown for weeks and weeks and months as a result of that. And the expense of that is generally not excusable. So that's why he got in trouble. It's not that he was committing journalism. It's that he was doing it in the middle of a trial that the government was trying not to have the charges get thrown out against these guys. So I think that's the number one thing to to, to focus on, at least in my opinion. And I get that people may not understand that. And and look, maybe the judges and the courts go too far. I think they do here in America sometimes too. It might surprise some of your audience to know that it's illegal to film oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court. There's a rule that says that's not illegal. Now to me, that's ridiculous. There's nothing that's more pertinent to the public interest than Supreme Court oral arguments. But I think it's a clear violation of the First Amendment that the media is not allowed to go in there and, and video record. But, you know, who doesn't agree is the Supreme Court and they get to win at the end of the day and those kinds of disputes. So that's, I think, where we are.
1: Why did you what prompted you to look further into this and and why do you think the point you're raising is important for our audience to understand?
4: Well, because, you know, I think that people may have the impression that Tommy is was the guy who, like, blew the whistle on all this and, the, and, the, and that it is, you know, being summarily ignored. And, and I, that's just not accurate from what I can find. And it's difficult to piece together some of the stuff. And I mentioned it in the story because he's been banned on a lot of social media platforms. So we can't – unfortunately, when you get banned from Twitter, you can't go back and look at somebody's old tweets. They're gone. Um, I can't find any evidence that he was t- – that Tommy Robinson was talking about this before the media did. Uh, that, in fact, when these guys were arrested, uh, the local media newspaper carried a report of their arrest and named them all and, and didn't, you know, sometimes the, the media does this. They give people who are clearly Muslims these names, like if they've taken some uh, Americanized name like John Smith, they name them as that instead of their Muslim. They did not do that. To their credit, they listed these guys as clearly, uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asian origin names i don't think that they they hit it the bbc picked up on it a couple days later Uh, it was being publicized there were cops prosecutors victims who who were the real heroes in this case and i think that their work almost got thrown out because robinson was basically trying to promote himself And, and i just didn't think that the story that was being presented of what happened to him and why was an accurate depiction of, of, of where this came from and, and the, the more I, I researched on it, the more you know kind of some troubling things show up in his past.
1: So you the conclusion that, of how you research this scenario is you view him as somebody who either worst case is just trying to grandstand for publicity off of this uh, off of this tragedy or B um, is somebody who uh, at best um, is clumsily trying to report, on on something uh despite court orders injunctions things of that nature uh that he's violated but he isn't he was in no way shape or form the the whistleblower the person who brought this uh to the public and the authorities attention and exposed that they were trying to hide this from the people of of the united kingdom you don't think there's any truth to that at all
4: no and look there certainly can be some value added to say that. Listen, the more the more attention is given to a problem like this, the better. Uh, there's something to that, right? The more people who pile on, the better. I certainly agree. Nobody should be getting away with rape, regardless of whether their uh, national origin, religion, or whatever is. Um, should be, you know, we should bring attention to this problem if it exists, and it certainly appears that it does exist. Uh, I don't think that it's accurate to say that, you know, without Tommy, these people would not be prosecuted anyway. I mean, look, there, there are some real heroes here that the victims in many cases were people who were in like the state, you know, equivalent of the foster system, very vulnerable people um, who, who had the reason to believe that if they came forward, they would be hurt, uh, even killed that their family would be, you know, have terrible things done to them. Those victims are, are heroes. The, The police who went into some of these areas that are very Um, You know, hostile to the the, the cops. It's not safe for them to go. Um, They they are heroes. The prosecutors who brought these, you know, cases in spite of, you know, fear for their life, they're heroes. And the concern is that all of those people's hard work uh, could have been undone. And that, that's not that's not correct and not something that, 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 that should happen uh, in, in any case.
1: Leon Wolf, our editor here uh, at The Blaze, is our guest for this week's Fake News or Not uh, on the Steve Day Show. I want to go to part two of this conversation then, which is the since the article ran, there is a rather lengthy apology, editor's note, correction, kind of all of those things at the front of the article too, delving where the original uh, piece you co-wrote went into his past. And... First of all, what prompted the correction uh, and that editor's note uh, an apology w- that from from w- the piece that was originally ran?
4: and so and let me just start off by reiterating my apology on Aaron. I, I genuinely feel terrible. I, I think it's pretty clear. I don't think a lot of Tommy Robinson, but I don't want to say things about him that are not true, and I just made a mistake. Um, you know, Aaron and I, as we started the story, this mistake is all mine. It's not Aaron's. Uh, Aaron Colin started,
1: is your co-author. That's who you're referring to. Right. Yeah. Okay. This,
4: this one's all mine. You know, As we started looking into uh, Tommy Robinson's life is fascinating. It could be talked about endlessly. It has been written about endlessly. There's just an a, a endless mountain of data. And as I was just going back, and I don't think that this was, if you read the story, I don't think it was like a main point in the story. It's not a focus. It was just trying to explain kind of how Tommy Robinson got to the place where he is in the UK. And, and one of the first things that happens in his life of note is that he got arrested in 2005. Uh, for assault against the police officer, um, and I read, you know, the reports on that, the the original r- arrest reports, and at the, con- you know, it says that there was a d- domestic dispute, um, and that uh, someone tried to intervene, who turned out to be an off-duty police officer. I think without Robinson, I don't think Robinson knew that it was a cop because he was not in uniform. Uh, but the officer tried to intervene, and Robinson kicked him in the head. So he ultimately he got charged with. Uh, assault that, that caused bodily harm and assault with resisting arrest. And typically, when you see that, that means you know assault against the girlfriend and assault against the cop. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an unwarranted leap on my part, uh, and turns out not to be uh, that they were both assault charges against the cop and not against the girlfriend. So I erroneously said that he was um, convicted of having assaulted his his girlfriend, and that is not true, and I, I regret having said it and and feel terrible about it to be one hundred percent honest. Whatever else, Whatever else Tommy Robinson may have done or, or or been associated with, I don't want to say things about him or anyone else that's not true. So that I apologize for that. Well that
1: that leads to my final question then, because I this is a reoccurring debate we are having on the right the last few years. And I and I've I've taken I've been on both sides of it. A few years ago when you had the Clive and Bundy um, uh, controversy, and I wrote about I was writing for the Washington Times at the time, and a national show had me on because I had written a column about it. And and they took the position that uh, they kind of there was some evidence that Clive and the, the Bundys had some racist views and what we'd call now alt right I guess um, we didn't have that term around in 2014 and and I my point was well I don't know a like a, a darn thing about the Bundy family the, I don't know that your your private property rights go away you know because you thought George Wallace was cool back in the day I mean but on the other hand a year ago when the social media purge began and it started with the likes of Alex Jones i also was concerned that the whole the reason they start with him is they wanted to make us all look like we're alex jones like the, the it was a prompt to get us all to jump in and and link arms so they can then discredit us all just wait because they'll come after some credible people sooner or later and that will be the time to you know to make a more prudent stand because because to me there's a larger debate that's happening here on the right which is when is it an absolute that we always stand up for somebody, regardless of whatever baggage they may or may not bring to the table? Uh, or do we need to be more prudent? or because you, there's never a perfect person to rally behind either. There's always going to be somebody. Uh, and, and a lot of times the kinds of people that are driven to challenge systems, the kinds of people that are usually in situations like the one you described Tommy Robinson was in, you're a pretty flaccid, passive person. You're probably not going to be inclined, inclined to challenge uh, you know, status quos where those sorts of things are concerned. So what are your views on that, Leon? Because I think there's that's a larger, broader conversation that's taking place on the right, whether it's Tommy Robinson or Laura Loomer or Gad- Kevin McInnes, you know, these are names we've even worked with here at the Blaze in the past. So what are your views on it?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I I go into some of that. And and I don't think that it's, uh, there's a reason that I tried at the beginning of this to focus on, you know, what it is that he did now that that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. Tommy Robinson's past is definitely interesting, is one way to say it. You know, between 2005 and 2009, which is not that long ago, he was a member of the British National Party, the BNP, which is a group that literally was a whites only, like that was in their constitution, only white people are eligible to join. People can draw their own conclusions about that. To Tommy's credit, he left that group uh, in 2009, founded the EDL. The EDL seems to me, and I'm not familiar enough with British politics, it seems to me in my research is kind of an equivalent to the Proud Boys here in America. You know, they're a controversial group. They get people's faces. Uh, You know, they, they, they disturb the status quo. And, you know, people have their strong opinions about that as well. Tommy Robinson left the EDL again, I think probably to his credit. I, I think that they were getting a little uh, uh, too extreme. So all those things are, are true, and people can draw their own, exclu- you know, conclusions about what those are. I set those up as, as kind of an interesting... Look, Tommy Robinson as a result of both the argument with his girlfriend and as a result of his political activity, had a number of assault charges on his record. Um, and so this is when, in 2013, is when it starts going from... Here's a guy with maybe a temper problem, you know, who has problems controlling his temper, and he's an activist, and he gets arrested at these, you know, events. He, like, he headbutted a counter-protester. He he appears that he may have gotten drunk at a soccer game and led some hooligans onto the field to confront, you know, some people from the other team. I mean, stuff like that, you know, not just assault stuff, you know, just a guy who's maybe gets drunk, he loses his temper. Uh, But he wanted to travel to the United States in 2013. Um, And so he applied for a visa, and as you might expect for somebody who has – you know, four or five assault charges on their record, including at least one who's against a cop, his visa application was denied. So he just borrowed a friend's passport and fraudulently used it to the end of the United States. And when he gets to JFK at, at New York, they take his fingerprints. I'm not entirely sure why. I don't, I don't believe take everybody's fingerprints. I've never gone through customs with JFK, but I've never had my fingerprints taken going through customs. By the way, I've got about
1: a, I've got about a minute left, so go ahead.
4: Anyway, so they take his fingerprints. They find out that he's not the guy on the passport. They go to question him, and he's slip gives ICE the slip and becomes literally an illegal immigrant, uh, and then uses a different fraudulent passport to get back into Britain. Um, And I'm just, it it amazes me that a guy who has made his hay, being, you know, I'm against open borders, uh, literally did the same exact thing that we would criticize and crucify somebody coming from Mexico for. You know, somebody who has a lengthy criminal record using fraudulent documents to enter the United States, that's exactly the kind of person that we're concerned about, that we write about and talk about here every day. You know, so I think it ought to be, uh, you know, something people look at when they're considering whether this is the guy who ought to be the poster child for this movement.
1: Leon Wolf, our editor here at The Blaze. Leon, thank you for joining us in the conversation today, man. We appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me.
1: Give you guys a chance to comment on this a little bit uh, later on. But uh, the secret sauce of Chick-fil-A success. We'll discuss that next. Stay tuned. We're back with our number two, live and on demand here on The Blaze. 888 933 93. Steve at stevedays.com is how you can email us. D E A C E or like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show if you're thinking about. Going full bore into what right now is a pretty active real estate market. Maybe you're buying a home, selling the one you have. Maybe you're doing what I did the last time where I was selling the one I was in and then trying to buy one at the exact same time. You need to make sure that you find a real estate agent that you can trust. And Real Estate Agents I Trust is a company, Glenn Beck and some of his friends started a few years ago. Because they were uh, tired of dealing with real estate agents who talked a good game, but then didn't deliver the results when they were needed the most. And they learned the hard way. You're looking for an agent that has a track record of success, number one. Number two, keeps up with the new technology and all the algorithms. I'm a big data guy, you know that. But uh, you also learn, if you study algorithms, that human nature trumps an algorithm. If there's an outlier out there, for example, if there's a home on your street that is being offered far less than recent sales on your street. Does your agent know why? Do they know it's because maybe they're, someone's been given a promotion and they need to instantly sell that home because they're relocating, so they're desperate to get rid of it? Right? Those are the outliers you're looking for to make sure that you don't spare the details. And then finally, uh, do you have do you get along with this person? Is there a relationship? Because this is a very relational process, working with a real estate agent. So if you don't have a rapport, if if you don't like returning their calls and they don't return yours, uh, and if their only answer is let's have another open house, then, then you're, that's not the right agent for you. If you want to find an agent that you can trust, it's as simple as going to this website realestateagentsitrust.com that's com. so in recent days are we we have featured on this show uh impromptu uh acapella gatherings singing uh lean on me we have we have uh, there's there's a there's the ad of the chick-fil-a drive through guy that helped a kid learn how to tie his tie right yep then, then we didn't like one do CPR or the Heimlich and save somebody or
3: probably. And
1: then jump out against like a uh, was it a snake or something? Yeah, there's we, a snake. There's wrangling a couple snake snakes wranglers. Yeah. Okay. What in the Sam Hill goes into the employee training at Chick-fil-A? It's
3: like the fifth branch of the military in no this doubt. country. I mean, apparently, wh- here's what happens. If you flunk out
1: your first day at Navy SEALs training, you go work the drive through window at Chick-fil-A for like three months just to make sure that you stay in shape for the next round of enrollment, right? Is that what goes on, do you think? Yeah, they'll get you back on your feet. So Steve Robinson is is one of the former uh, uh, mucky mucks over there at Chick-fil-A. And, and he huh. joins us now. He's got a new book out, Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, How Faith Cows and Chicken Built an Iconic Brand and also taught people how to be total badasses, apparently. Uh, so Steve joins us here on The Blaze. Steve, good to have you with us, man. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm great. I don't think I'd describe them quite that way, but you're, you're, you're onto the idea.
1: So Thank what, you. what, what do you guys, when you were there, how did you, I mean, do you, I know you'd train your employees, say, hey, be ready for everything, but snake wrangling tie tie in. Uh, I mean, are you guys, you know, doing family counseling as they wait, you know, for their waffle fries? I mean, what don't you guys do over there?
0: <laughs> well, Steve, it's actually not that complicated. Um, and it's not a lot of processes. It actually starts with who you attract to the business. Uh, Truett Cathy, who was the founder of Chick-fil-A, uh, when he started the business, he designed an independent operator concept, where every restaurant is operated and led by a freelance independent contractor. Uh, Chick-fil-A makes all the investment, but the operator is accountable for the, for the performance of the brand, the performance of the stores, recruiting, developing, and training team members. And he literally wanted leaders in every restaurant who could solve problems, take care of the customers, so his phone wouldn't be ringing. And um, so what you experience in Chick-fil-A restaurants is really a function of the on-site leader who's completely and totally committed to the performance of that restaurant and the experience every guest has. Now, the culture of Chick-fil-A, which emanated from Truett, is one of, of, uh, quite frankly, is one of grace, gratitude. He was a very grateful man. He wanted a business that would create a platform for for people to be served and a platform that would give people within Chick-fil-A an opportunity to thrive and because of that kind of cultural value set and the operator agreement when they merge uh, you have an environment where team members are are attracted to an independent contractor who's not going anywhere they're fully vested in that store that community the team members are their members they're not members of the the corporation Um, and so the operator has a built-in incentive to attract and keep every customer to attract and keep great employees and to create experiences that do both, and so that's that's what happens. You you attract a great leader, and quality attracts quality, and they in turn attract great team members into their restaurants. And then yes, we have we not only have standards for two pickles on every sandwich. We Chick-fil-A has standards for hospitality and behaviors that are expected, and there are training programs for those. There are measurement programs for those. But at the end of the day, it's really a function of that embedded leader um, at every Chick-fil-A store. And I I like to say, quite frankly, Truett figured out how to recreate himself. There are over 2,000 of those operators out there now, but they all understood and they all understand what was important to the founder. They all understand the corporate purpose of Chick-fil-A, which is to glorify God and have a positive influence on those who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. and and giving that cultural context, and understanding what's important to the the man who gave them that opportunity. Um, On on the whole, and I mean 99.5% of the time, they live it out, and their team members live it out. And it's a beautiful thing to watch, quite frankly. It's it's classic uh, economic freedom uh, empowered through over 2000 entrepreneurs.
1: Well the other thing it is Steve just listening to you lay that out I mean you just gave an exegetical um, application of the biblical principle of headship uh, applied in a in a corporate model. that's what yeah. you just did. I mean you just you said hey it, it you know it starts with Mr. Kathy and the and the vision that he cast and the expectations that that he demands uh, and 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 the precedent that he uh, established of what he will reward and what he won't, and then you run your own restaurant, but you are expected uh, to to run it uh, in a way uh, in his image, uh, so to speak, with your own personal personality and touch and and those sorts of things. But that's the that's the vision that has been crafted, and that is to filter down uh, down to the individual uh, store clerks and operators and things of that nature. I mean, that is. That's that's the biblical principle of headship. That's just what you articulated and laid out, Steve. Just it's applied in the corporate sector.
0: Yeah, but in a very positive sense. True, um, he generated followership. Uh, it wasn't through hierarchy or authority. It was through who he was. Um, he was um, he was a, a man who was gracious because he had experienced grace, um, and he was he was very open about that. And he was a man who liked to empower others to discover their giftedness and express that through the business. And at the end of the day, um, people understood what was important to it. So when he passed in two thousand and fourteen, there was there was no there was no cultural cloud about what was important in terms of the mission of Chick Fil A, the values of Chick Fil A. Uh, his two sons and daughter, the second generation, uh, have continued the same focus. Uh, around the corporate purpose and and again what what's really important in the business and sure, it used to always say this this is a great example of how simple he made it he used to remind us that the the word restaurant means place of restoration and he he contended and i agree with him that everybody that goes to a restaurant doesn't does not go just for food very often we go for the experience well why can't you go to a fast food restaurant for more than food why can't you go to a fast food restaurant for an experience. And that's what he wanted Chick fil A to be an experience that was gracious, that people would remember, and ideally people would talk about. Uh, I never thought in my 35 years there I'd see the day that Chick fil A would become a cult brand in a, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's what's happened. And it, it all started with clarity about the kind of experience people, the true trip, water people have when they came to a Chick fil A restaurant.
1: You mentioned you were there for 35 years. So let's go. Let's go to the year you started there, 1981. Mm-hmm. In 1981, what was Chick Fil A?
0: Chick Fil A had roughly 140 mall-based restaurants, exclusively in malls. Had sales of about 100 million. Uh, they had the operator concept by then. Uh, menu was only about seven or eight items, pretty simple, um, and they had no marketing department, <laughs> <laughs> which was good news for me. I was the director of marketing for Six Flags over Georgia. So you're and- you're
1: still not yet the official restaurant of college football. Essentially, oh, that, that hasn't no, happened yet. Yeah,
0: no, far from it. That didn't start happening until the late nineties, early two thousand. Yeah, no, it was a small regional. I think they were only in six or seven states in the southeast, and um, it was it was. I had a great job at Six Flags. I love Six Flags. It was a brand oriented business, great laboratory to learn. But when they offered me the opportunity to walk in a, a different kind of culture, one that fit with my values, um, privately held with a long-term perspective of the business as opposed to the constant term, what's going on with quarterly earnings and cash flow mm-hmm. and reports and all that stuff. And the opportunity to create a marketing department and potentially shape a brand from scratch. Uh, I was only 30 years old, but um, I didn't just fall off the tur- turnip truck. I knew this was a heck of an opportunity. And uh, that's that's how it all started. It was an amazing experience to walk into this business uh, when it was <coughs> when it was still very, if you will, adolescent.
1: So 35 years ago, it's a successful family business, largely regional uh, you know, uh, largely something that if you live in or travel in that part of the country, it, it's kind of a hidden gem that you're aware of. But the average American has no clue what this place is. No. When Third you leave, th- when you leave 35 years later, this is a seven billion dollar a year corporation. You're making the most controversial and apparently dangerous chicken sandwich in the history <laughs> of humankind. Right, right? right. And and you are the uh, you are the official restaurant of of what this show officially believes is the greatest sport in America, college football. All right. And I mean, you are causing campus protests and everything else. What, what, what was the, I, cause you know, we have a, we got a vast audience here, people all over the country. Some of them are, are entrepreneurs, business owners, people that would love to be the the nice little regional secret that Chick-fil-A was 35 years ago, let alone the force of nature it is today. What was the tipping point? Or was there one? Was it just a series of, of fortunate events that led to this getting to the point now that it is what the number three restaurant chain on planet Earth, I believe, right now behind McDonald's and Subway, right?
0: In terms of sales, yeah. It yeah. Is. Uh, Steve, you alluded to the answer. It it was no one thing. Uh, It was a a series of things. And quite frankly, when I started writing about this book and started drafting my notes, even though I lived through it, I was amazed at the the series of milestone events in the business that helped shape the brand uh, the way, quite frankly, the way God led uh, Truett and our executive committee to to make decisions and the kind of decisions we made and and the the business-changing, life-changing implications of those decisions. Now, I don't think there's any decision we made, however. I'll start with probably one of the most fundamental uh, than what occurred in 1982. Uh, I've only been there less than two years, and the mall business comes to a screeching halt because the price of money is 18-20%. Uh, There are no malls coming out of the ground all of a sudden. Retail sales have gone down substantially. Our sales have gone down for the first time in the history of Chick-fil-A, almost 30%. We have a serious cash flow challenge. And to make matters worse on the side, I I led a national campaign that went over budget by $2 million and hit the corporate P&L like a big rock. So all that's the circumstances of when we went off to an executive committee meeting at Truett's request where he had a very simple request. What are you going to do to get us out of this mess? We're, we're, we're facing some difficult things mm-hmm. here. We don't get this cash thing fixed. We're in trouble. And it was at that meeting where, yeah, we worked on budgets. We worked on initiatives. We froze hiring. We trimmed some staff. Decisions we didn't need to move on right away, but it was also there that we said, you know what? Maybe the most important thing we can do in the midst of this crisis is to be very clear about why we exist, what's important to true captain and his family, and that's where we crafted in less than a day and a half the corporate purpose statement to glorify God of being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to you us. You went
1: back to first principles. That's what you did. We went
0: back to first. We went to why do we exist? Hmm. Why do we exist? Let's make sure everybody's very clear why this business exists. And, and the context of that was Sturt sitting there with us, our little executive group saying, I don't consider this business mine. I consider this a gift from God. I've had my ups and downs in life, my ups and downs in business. And trust me, he had, he had, he had health issues, he had a restaurant that burned, he, he'd had challenges. Um, I consider this a gift from God just as much as my, my salvation. And I'm concerned about how we steward it, that the lifeblood of the business is profits. It's a business, it's not a ministry, but if God would prosper us, I want it to be a business that honors him and serves others. So that's the way he framed the issue of why we exist. And that led to the purpose statement, the statement that we wrote to glorify God, being a faithful steward of all those entrusted to us and to have a positive influence, on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And I have to tell you, Steve, we didn't actually share that with the staff or the operator family for, for a couple of weeks. We just slept on it, made sure we still felt good about it. And when we shared it, along with our revised 1983 plans, uh, it was interesting. It was like a, it was like an emotional cloud lifted from the business. People relaxed, um, they focused on the work. It, it made it very clear about what was important, because true also basically said, if the business doesn't survive, it's not my problem. It's not my business <laughs> and uh, people were, were good with that. And, um, the next year we had a 36% sales increase. Wow. Uh, I don't know that I can, I can't fully explain that. We did introduce the Chick-fil-A nuggets, but, um, it was a, a transformative. It was kind of one of those first major milestones in the business where there was no confusion about why we're in business, uh, who it was designed to serve, not just customers, but literally our Heavenly Father. And we we had a lot more after that, but that's one of the first experiences that I unpack in my book.
1: Final question I want to ask you, Steve, and, and I think it's a good follow-up to what you just laid out. We are entering into an America, in fact, we might even be fully immersed in it now, essentially a post-Christian era.
0: Mm -hmm. And,
1: and believers, you know, this is the, the only nation really in the history of the church who, which was founded by directly by people and ideals either associated with or inspired by Christianity. And so, you know, the Christian church has always been everywhere. It's gone until America, the marginalized place. It, it started on the margins, had to work its way into the mainstream. It, it was never given the benefit of the doubt. The default was the mainstream and the majoritarian position. And now we're in an era for the first time in this culture where that's not going to be the case. And a lot of believers are struggling with you know, am I going to get banned from this platform or not get this job? You know, if I don't affirm, you know, whatever the new crazy is that comes down the pike and how do I walk a narrow road and those sorts of things? I mean, I, I struggle with that here. I got to do broadcasting at the same time. My belief system calls me through a narrow gate. You know, how do I navigate that? I I would think someone who spent the last 35 years at a company as successful as Chick-fil-A might have a unique perspective on given all the controversies and things that erupted the last few years you were there, uh, as now we seek to weaponize everything politically, Uh, nowadays even a chicken sandwich. What would you say, just a practical, how much can you still transcend differences with excellence, with graciousness, with courteousness? What would you say to encourage our audience along those lines who are going down some of the roads that, frankly, Chick-fil-A was dragged down in the last several years while you were there?
0: That is a great question. There's no simple answer, but I'll, I'll hit a few highlights. I would say, Steve, that and particularly after the experiences of 2012 post, which was when we had a little PR blow up, um, I would say that it caused us to go back and focus on our roots our our purpose foundation but really also focus on the roots of what we were trying to live out and that was an environment and a business that expressed honor dignity and respect to everybody and in the restaurant business that really plays out by being gracious to everybody genuine hospitality the fundamentals of looking somebody in the eye communicating i'm glad you're here my pleasure when you thank me, going the extra mile, which we, quite frankly, we, we took the passage from Matthew 5, 41, to help create a, a value statement about what our hospitality model would be about, going the extra mile, from waiting on tables, to carrying trash, to refit, brushing drinks, umbrellas when it's raining, etc. All that was not just to create a better experience, but to live out the corporate purpose of Honoring God and having a faithful steward, but not because we're on a soapbox or on on social media. Um, We're just trying to be salt and light in the marketplace. And and even as Christ interacted with people, there's story after story where he didn't lead with truth, he didn't lead with a dialogue or an argument, he led with grace, he led with acceptance of of the individual, um, whoever whoever it was, a woman at the well or a tax collector up on a tree or You you can think of the stories. He led with a relationship that was not restricted by any paradigms or political arguments. And he built a relationship with people. Well, that's what we're trying to do at Chick-fil-A. We're trying to build a relationship with anybody that encounters the brain. And I say we, it's hard for me to speak past tense because I don't work there anymore, but it's it's, after 35 years, it's part of who I am Mm -hmm. and and quite frankly, my value set was, uh, was dramatically improved and shaped by my Chick-fil-A experience. So I would say the principle of salt and light is, is, is hard. It means we have to live out and walk our faith. I don't think anybody is going to win an argument on any of these issues. Um, but you might convince somebody that you're genuine and you're sincere in what you believe because they see how you live and how you treat them. Um, so that that would be my pass at your question.
1: Mm. Steve Robinson, a former CMO at Chick-fil-A, at Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, how Faith Cows and Chicken built an iconic brand. And uh, uh, Steve, I, I thank you for coming on, but uh, I've earned this interview. The amount of coin... My family has (laughs) dropped at your restaurant. My oldest daughter, this is like, you're one of the four food groups, okay? So, uh, frankly, you ought to be thanking me. I I helped pave the way for at least some semblance of your retirement, my friend.
0: Yeah, I'm on a pension program now, so please.
1: (laughs) God bless you, man. Thanks for joining us today on The Blaze. Take care, all right?
0: Thank you, Steve. It was a privilege. Take care.
1: Privilege to have you with us, too. Take care. Um. Any quick thoughts on that conversation we just had with Steve Robinson before we go back to the conversation we had with Leon Wolf a little while ago?
3: Well, that spicy chicken sandwich, in and of itself, it, it's a microcosm of everything he said. I like spicy food, mm-hmm. and before I had that first time, like, okay, every fast food they have their spicy chicken sandwich, and it's got some black pepper. Uh, uh, you know, they're not trying to burn your mouth off, but it's a legit, yeah, spicy, and it never once. I mean. Th- it's never flawed. I keep going back to it. It's almost like I go back to it, I love it, but I keep waiting for the, you know, th- that that chicken that was just kind of weak sauce. It never happens. Is, I Have you had the peach shake there yet? You're, that's me, man. You're asking. Yeah, you're not the, the sweet tooth no.
1: guy. The peach shake there is really good, by the way.
3: And somebody dissed. The waffle fries? I think they're the best fries in the I almost, I, those are fighting words to me. Yeah, what are you talking I think, about? I
1: think they are the best fries in all of fast food are the waffle fries at Chick-fil-A. They're my
2: number one.
3: They're outstanding.
2: I appreciated the, uh, this is one thing that stood out to me. Uh, he said, we're a business, we're not a ministry, so we got to make money. Now, I'm not trying to throw shade at ministries. I'm sure there, there are some ministries that probably shouldn't exist because I, I think a lot of ministries probably our our ministries uh, basically, but it was very uh, it was very eye opening though throughout the enti- course of the entire uh, interview. It's very clear Chick Fil A has a mission, mm-hmm. but they're just not they they're carrying it out through the business world. And this is the conversation we've tried to have multiple times. Tried to, the conversation that uh, Tucker Carlson has tried to create multiple times. Uh, here in the last few months is that the people like the Dan Cathy's of the world and the Steve Robinsons of the world who see their business as a mission, they, they are not there. Uh, capitalism, that that what we just witnessed, what we just witnessed was capitalism with virtue. Yeah, I think that's I think that is the undercurrent and that virtue comes from their deep seated beliefs in a Judeo Christian worldview. It's fascinating. It's almost like there's some sort of natural law and some sort of, I don't know, by the book principles that they're doing all this through. And if you did them too, then maybe you might be as successful. I don't know. What stuck
1: out to me the most is when he said they felt like they were losing their way and they were at an existential breaking point. And what did they do? They went back to first principles. What did we do on this show after so many people, us included, were bewildered by what they witnessed in 2016? We spent the whole next year in 2017 doing what? Going back to first principles, what is conservatism? What is it? What, what is it we're trying to conserve? What does the term even mean, right? And I think right now we're looking for all these new methods and new approaches and everything else. And it's, it's, it's because we've we've turned our back on the old magic. That's, that's why we're here. And I, I thought that was very profound when he said, you know, we... Before we'd made anything else, we just got together in a meeting and we just, you know, what is the mission? What's our first principle? What's our reason for being? If we don't have that right, there's not going to be a marketing plan or, you know, uh, some some kind of actuarial study that's going to help us pave a way back to uh, cash flow solvency if we don't get that right.
3: There's a strange amount of comfort in Chick-fil-A's mere existence in this culture. Agreed. It's just like, oh, if you're faithful, think— Good things can happen. Not not always, and they've certainly had their crosses to bear, yeah. but it's a testimony to being faithful and the joy that comes from it.
1: And I think the focus on excellence, we're going to have to focus on that now. Not that we weren't before, but it, it's going to have to be a laser-like focus in your line of work, where you serve, and what Chick-fil-A has done is is have they've, they've pointed out the true paradox of Christianity to the unbeliever, which is the things about my belief system you find the most offensive are what cause me to treat you in the way that you find the most merciful and charming and rewarding at the same time, right? There's this, the, what the world wants to do is they want to separate the grace and the mercy from the truth and the law. And what did, what did you hear uh, Steve say there. Hey, we had to go back to first principles. Meaning, we were kind of outside the law. We were operating outside of the very laws and of nature and nature's God that we were founded on. And we had to go back and reassert and get back. You know, we had to get back within the boundaries of of who
3: we are. And it sounded like it happened innocently enough, just kind yep. of on cruise control, nosy yep. and along. Hey, and we're, and let's, let's
1: get aggressive. We're growing here. We yeah. got a plan. We got our own plan, yeah. rather than following the plan. Right? We got to get back to the plan. You know, and that's, that's the paradox. And I struggled with it as an unbeliever as well. You know, I, you know, I, your views are highly exclusive. And I find that offensive and abhorrent. And yet those highly exclusive views are what prompt you to reach out to me when I don't have anybody else doing that. When I, what you, prompt you to give me a second chance when a lot of people say I'm not deserving of one. And so the world really struggles with this paradox and wants to separate these two things, we can't, because it's 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 my obedience to the things you found offensive that causes me to reach out to you and to give you grace. Why? Because that's part of one of those beliefs that I'm not permitted to. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not permitted to compromise, you know. And I think that. That's the paradoxical nature of what has made them successful is the same thing that prompts their employees to go the extra mile for folks is the same thing that prompts them to, uh, to take a stand uh, and, and, and espouse the values that they have both with their business model and, and with some of their philanthropic work in the past as well. And I think that, that is, that's a, that's a roadmap for where we are going to need to go as believers in this post-Christian era. All right, when we come back, I want to give you guys a chance to comment on the conversation we have with Leon Wolf about uh, Tommy Robinson. And then we're going to do Pop Culture Tuesday. We're going to take a look at what I think are the 10 best movies I've seen so far in 2019 with the year halfway over and what they have to say about conservatism. That, next, right here. Live and on demand on The Blaze. Stay tuned. So you may have hit a wall with your effort to get healthier, to lose weight, uh, get back into fighting shape, if you will. And it, it could be you're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing uh, from an activity standpoint. You're trying to limit, though, what you eat. But you're struggling. The cravings, maybe you know you're not, you, you think you're eating uh, the right amount for servings, but then you're too hungry afterwards and you have to eat more. This is where riduzone uh, comes in. Riduzone is not loaded with chemicals or caffeine. It's not any kind of stimulant. It, it's really a signal. See, there's a signal that goes from your gut to your brain. It, it's got a long name. Its abbreviation is OEA. And all it really does is signal to the brain when uh, when the belly's full and we can stop eating. So it, it helps to, then to clear the way for your metabolism to step in and, and work the way it used to, and it's supposed to. Unfortunately, for too many of us, that signal's just not as strong as it needs to be, particularly as we get older. And that's where Riduzone comes in. It wants to just put the OEA back up to optimum levels. All right, If you want to give Riduzone a shot here's all you need to do uh, use my name when you check out uh, they'll give you a special offer when you do when you go to the website riduzone.com that's r-i-d-u-z-o-n-e for riduzone.com gentlemen let's uh, rewind back about an hour the conversation we had with our editor here at the blaze leon wolf about tommy robinson who's uh, kind of become recently a um a, a favorably viewed figure Uh, particularly from a lot of conservative media. Uh, We've depicted him favorably in some of the video clips and some of the things we've had in our own montage. So our editor, Leon, did a little research, found some things that were problematic by his own admission, made some assumptions on some things that he found that didn't turn out to be accurate, and then had to correct uh, the story and apologize for some of the allegations that he made. But I, I think that this is, there's a broader argument, I think, and, and, you know, like I mentioned to Lee and I've been on both sides of it here as well, you know, where a few years ago I was like, I don't really know what Clive and Bundy or the family's views are on, you know, racial identity politics. I just know that, you know, they have, you know, you may have your, if you have an 18th century view on race, that doesn't mean you lose your private property rights. On the other hand, you know, a year ago, I was very concerned when Alex Jones was the first person banned on social media that a bunch of people, a bunch of our friends here in, in conservative media wanted to glom onto him and treat him as a sympathetic figure because I thought that was a trap. I thought that's, they, that we were doing exactly what they wanted us to do so that they could then label us all as Alex Jones and then ban us all whole cloth. So I, I understand both sides of this argument, not saying I was right, right on wrong, one and wrong on the other or wrong on one and right on the other. But what did you guys take away from that conversation? Uh,
3: that the truth... More than anything, really, really matters, uh, and it's worth fighting for. A ton of credit uh, to Leon uh, for believing in that within the confines of this uh, particular uh, story. But this is way more about uh, you know Tommy Robinson. Your point, Steve, about the kinds of mes- messengers that often come along with the truth. I mean, as Christians, don't we know that? I mean, that's that, that, that's the Bible. Page after page after page. I mean,
1: last two years ago was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We did tons of shows yep. about it, you from a Catholic perspective and me from a Protestant one. And But one of the things that was a reoccurring theme is Martin Luther was not a swell dude, no. regardless of whether you thought he was on the right side of history or yeah. not. I mean, the things he wrote, I mean, he was he was calling curses upon his his ideological uh, theological rivals. um there's there's things within his writings that I don't know how to explain them other than blatantly anti-Semitic. ok? So um there's no question, even if you disagree with the side of the theological divide he was on, that the the Reformation he ushered in was hugely influential. and and largely beneficial to Western civilization in many ways. But he's also at times a very problematic character. I mean... we would have had a conversation 500 years ago if we had Facebook, social media, Google, we could look into who's this Martin Luther guy who's this lightning rod. There's a lot of folks when I come forward and said, I don't know that this is the guy we ought to be rallying around right here. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that you'll ever find someone so willing to, to challenge, and I said this to Leon, Typically, the kinds of people that are so willing to challenge status quo's without fear of reprisal are usually the people that are, probably, are usually do have some some red in the ledger. They're not yeah. you're not always going to find the choir yeah. boys or the ones that are like, you know, what? I'm just not comfortable with how things are right now. So mm-hmm. let me do something about it. Sometimes that happens. Often it doesn't.
3: And so in, in in conversations that are existentially worth fighting for, which we have more and more of these days, it's not it's not the most important time in human history, but it's an important time. And they've all been around having very honest conversations that make you uncomfortable, which is why the yesterday and the weekend was so frustrating for me. It, the, the conversation about what Trump said wasn't remotely honest at any turn. And we were talking about this a little off the air. It's I, I, I hate it with the viscerally that, that the term racism has been abused to such a point that it almost has no meaning. You cannot bandy it about, like, no matter what you think about Donald Trump, it is fraudulent to be such a respecter of persons mm-hmm. that you will take any notion of truth and bend it and twist it into a clownhouse mirror so you get the effect you want. Leon's conversation about one particular man is a reminder of how— it's important to point out the fact that he had feet on clay, feet of clay. And he said the reason it's important to be honest about that is so hopefully the good that did or did not come out of that can still survive the light of day. Does it – is all the good that is done in the world meant to sink to the bottom of the pit Mm -hmm. because – it is found out by men of feet of clay who either fell before finding out and we found it out that later or fall later on. That's not a way any of us uh, can live. And it's not a legacy we should hand on to our children. So I just, uh, humility was shown uh, by Liam. That's something we always need to see. But there's truth that goes way beyond the, the, quite frankly, the particulars of the story are at the bottom of the lessons to be learned. What would you think, Aaron? Listening to that, a couple
2: of uh, thoughts at the forefront. I mean, we often say on the show, uh, movements need their contrarians, and so contrarian thoughts should always be taken um, seriously, but with a grain of salt. And so, a couple of uh, a couple of different fronts on that: the integrity of of Leon and his co-author, whose name is ex- escaping me right now, of writing this. Uh, that's that you Aaron that Colon. I think a, was Aaron his name. Colin, yeah. yeah. Uh, that takes uh, quite a bit of integrity and uh, maybe a little bit of um, courage as well to write that. And then a couple. Uh, and then the other front of integrity is Leon's uh, apology for misconstruing a, a couple of things in that story as well. So both of those things together, I, I think there is some some integrity there that needs to be commended, uh, regardless of if you agree or disagree. What this story indicates as well, especially, I, I'm. Especially when it happens on the other side of the ocean, where the culture is, you know, it's still part of Western civilization, the culture is a little bit different. And so we, I think, are more apt and more prone, and it could even be regional here, domestically. I think we are more apt and more prone to believe the fantastic when it's not happening. Uh, within 100 miles of us you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. it is more easy to believe that something terrible is going on as long as it's over there because that's in a foreign distant far land that's not acceptable if we are to be seekers of truth we have to test everything we really do and it's so difficult in this age where you really don't know who your friends are who your foes are it's the number one reason i think why uh politicians all politicians develop cults is because people want to know they're on your side or you're on their side because then they can feel safe because mm-hmm. the world is a scary place. This is part and parcel of that. Stories like this. it's We wanted Tommy Robinson to be on our side because that seems scary. And we wanted to be with him. We wanted him to be on our side because it felt like he was the one that was st- standing up and sticking, uh, sticking it to the government. Now we know that that's not really the truth. And now we know that this guy's got, uh, let's say a checkered history, uh, to, to put it very mildly as well. And so all of this goes together to say we have to know who we are first before we start assigning anything to anyone, whether it's motivations, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, hero status, whether it's messiah status, whether it's villain status. We cannot, uh, we cannot afford to go out into the world and try to find truth and try to be discriminating and I mean that in the way it was originally intended, the, sure. the word discriminate. Meaning with, with with discernment. Yes, discernment. Yeah. Um, we cannot do that if we don't first know who we are. Because if we do not know who we are, uh, we are going to be willing to fall for and believe in anything. And I think this story is an illustration of that.
1: So I'm going to call an audible here. We're going to table Pop Culture Tuesday for this week. Because I think we're having a... A very important conversation, both on a professional level for us working in this medium, but then for all of you that are watching and listening that are consumers of this as well, because I, I, we're consumers of it too. I don't consume as much of it in my free time as I used to um, since I started working here full time because I don't want to be consumed by it. But we're consumers of it on some level like all of you are as well. And, and so we're all facing the same challenge. And and that challenge, I think, kind of comes down to the, to this point. And you guys tell me what you think. If you agree, disagree, want to add to it, amend it in any way or take away. The, the challenge is that it is true. And let's just stick with Tommy Robinson, because that's the name de jour we're talking about right now. It's absolutely true that whatever or whomever Tommy Robinson was associated with of a nefarious problematic background in, in recent history, whatever he may or may not have done of a problematic background uh, in, or problematic nature in recent history doesn't change one iota of whether there's a serious problem with unfettered Islamic immigration in the United Kingdom. Does, that, that issue doesn't rise and fall on the integrity of Tommy Robinson, right? Yes. There's no question about that. You know, I, just, I just mentioned some of Luther's problematics. Uh, he once famously said to some of his seminary students that uh, he supposes that if the Lord could speak out of the back ass of a donkey, he could speak even through the likes of him. Okay, But it is also, though, true that if some of these things involving Tommy Robinson and these past associations and these past allegations have, are accurate... If you use him as your proxy to bring the truth of this matter to the public, you do make it easier for the status quo, uh, for the Overton window, to slam shut and say, I mean, this guy's a freak show. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's an alt writer." right? Okay, so how we navigate that. That's why I, I mentioned to Leon, I've been on both sides of this. I've been the guy who said I don't think it really matters if Clive and Bundy's a racist because private you know if uh, private property rights are kind of an absolute you know people can change their minds on race and evolve your your the right to your pro- property is unalienable but I've also been the guy warning about linking arms with the likes of Alex Jones at the same time I, I don't know that there's a blueprint for this if someone has one share it with me I think to be absolutist on this in either scenario opens you up um, uh, to being caught with your knickers down or to willfully blinding yourself to some of the things in society that need to be confronted at the same time. And and so I kind of think we got to negotiate this on a case-by-case basis because both of those things are simultaneously true. What do you guys think?
3: Well, you you just described uh, kind of what you say about modern-day foreign policy Mm -hmm. case-by-case basis, and listen, this is beyond theoretical to us. We we tell you all the time that we don't have much in the way of uh, official show prep here. I mean, we're— we talk uh, back and forth uh, before the show, after the show about stuff, but that's it's just talking. Um, but in, in the times when we've kind of officially said, okay, it's, uh, where are we at? It's been an iron, sharp and iron moment. It's the, it's the reason why Steve has us here in part when we, we go back to Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and we go back to Roy Moore. And we're just, uh, listen, we, right now we need to be able to uh, trust ourselves internally with being totally honest with one another Mm -hmm. so we can be totally honest out front. And if we're having trouble capably doing it just amongst the three of us, we better make sure our reach doesn't exceed our grasp when we go out on the show and talk to however many people we talk to. And we put it all out on the table in those conversations. And there wasn't a demand that we all necessarily had to agree before we go on forward, but there was a demand that we needed to be as— I mean, we're pretty good at being honest with ourselves, but we have feet of clay. And in those moments, we needed to make sure we were being real honest with ourselves. So I think on that case-by-case basis, you need to make sure that you have the people in your life that you go to. I mean, we also do this for a living because we're also pretty confident in our take on things. Mm-hmm. But you, Okay, I got to admit, I'm, I'm feeling maybe 50-50 at best on this. W- what you got? Tell me. Give me your best shot. I'm all ears on it. it that, in my experience, based on the opportunity you've provided me through this work, um, when those moments have come along, that's how we've handled it, and I think it has worked. What do you think, Aaron? That's well said, yeah, by the way.
2: Th- yeah, that is well said, Todd. Um, yeah, these, these situations, I mean, if, let, let's, let's, again, be honest with ourselves because we weren't being before. before. Um, if you're going to tell the truth, that has to be inherent in each situation that comes up. We, and this is where the convictions versus positions comes up. Convictions are, no matter what, this or that is what I believe in. Uh, it's black and white. There is no... NB. Positions can change uh, depending on the circumstances. If you are going to, um, if you are going to use discernment, um, how, how do you use discernment if you're not taking things on a case-by-case basis? Where we get into trouble, where any of us get into trouble is when we stop doing that. Because we're, we cease being discer- discerning when uh, we decide that thus and such fits our narrative or that this person seems like uh, he or she is is doing what we want or what we don't want. That's when we, when we just start painting with broad brushes. That's when we cease using discernment. So I, I would agree with that, but I don't think you're necessarily breaking any new ground here. Because... If we are going to truly be people of discernment, if we're truly going to be classically discriminating people, then that is what we have to do on on every single level. And we're not go we're never going to be perfect at it uh, because we're human. Um, and and you know, from day to day, we will do our best. But I don't really think you're breaking a whole lot of new ground by saying that. I'm not trying to poop all over what you just said, but that's I mean that. That's what we that's what we try to do and that's what it, that's what our audience tries to do. That's why I think they come to us. As here's well.
1: where it is new ground though. The technology makes it available that a Tommy Robinson couldn't be couldn't do this 5 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 20 years ago, 20 years ago. The dynamic is true that that's we're not breaking new ground. This has always been a challenge for any movement, but the technology makes it immediately available for somebody to be for a grifter to grift and, and get rewarded as a hero for it while they're grifting or for a hero who previously couldn't get an audience to come forward and, and and show not all heroes wear capes. That's the difference. The technological environment, not to mention the 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 wise skepticism of mainstream media outlets has people looking for, you know, off the beaten path for alternative sources. Which is wise, but it also opens us up to another layer of vulnerability that we weren't vulnerable to when we just sat around waiting for Walter Cronkite to tell us what to think over dinner every night. Well, quickly I- I got thirty seconds.
3: Ironically, back. your Reformation analogy works for that too, because putting the Bible in everybody's hand yeah. works good sometimes. Not so much other times. And
1: you turn on TBN, it's good sometimes, not so good most of the time.
3: Yeah, there's some truth to that, too.
1: Hey, if you watched, uh, if you turn on the TV and watched a recent episode of 60 Minutes, then you saw uh, the the FBI's former head of cybercrimes on there warning about a new crime wave sweeping the nation. It's called home title fraud. It's the most valuable investment most Americans will ever have. And now it's more vulnerable than it ever has been before because our home titles, uh, the, the, the deeds, the mortgage notes, all of these things are now kept online in databases that can be hacked by scammers. Who then forge their names onto your paperwork, borrow against your, your your equity, using that equity as collateral, and then stick you with the payments, maybe even a foreclosure notice. Don't let that happen to you, especially when for pennies a day, Home Title Lock will make sure that it does not. If you want to learn more or find out if your home's title has already been tampered with or targeted, go to the website for a free title scan and report at HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. All right, we're going to stick around and tape a little something extra for subscribers. The supernova known as Beta O'Rourke, one of the most stunning falls we we have ever witnessed in American electoral politics. Why did it happen? For the rest of you, we'll see you tomorrow. Until then, John 317. This is Steve
2: Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.